Welcome to Crime and Spirits, your new favorite true crime and cocktail podcast. I'm your host, Bree. And I'm your other host, Suze. We're best friends who are obsessed with true crime, and we love a good themed cocktail. So we took our two favorite things and turned them into a podcast. Every Sunday, we release a new episode covering a different case or topic of interest. I'm the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits, so every time we get together, I mix up a drink that ties into the episode in some way, shape, or form, and then I teach you how to make one for yourself. That way, you can sip right along with us. We like to keep things conversational around here, so expect some tangents on occasion, as well as some cursing here and there. Think of us as a cross between Dateline and Girls' Night. So, come hang out with us every week while we learn a little something new together. We'd love to chat with you about whatever, really, but mostly true crime. You better buckle up, Buttercup. And sip tight. Let's get on with the show. Woo! Hello, hello! Thanks for joining us for another episode of Crime and Spirits. We are your hosts. My name is Bree. And I'm Suze. We are so happy that you could be here with us today. Yeah, yeah. We'd like to welcome you back to the Summer of Serial Killers, but today is the Unsolved Edition. Bum, bum, bum. Dun, dun, dun. This week, we are bringing you guys a twofer, two for one special, if you will. And as the title suggests, the identity of the serial killers that we'll be discussing today remains a mystery, at least technically remains a mystery mm-hmm. as we know susan and i have said it time and time again i mean we're basing an entire month's worth of case off of it california in the 70s was fucking wild and it had no shortage of murder and mayhem happening all the time everywhere pretty much <laughs> so it would make sense that you know there were a couple cases that law enforcement just wasn't able to close there was just a lot happening at the time and they sure did have their hands full. That is an understatement if I've ever heard one. <laughs> right. So today we decided to dive into a couple cases that piqued our interest. So first up is going to be The Doodler, an unidentified killer who targeted gay men in the mid 1970s. This person is believed to be responsible for anywhere from six to 16 murders, as well as three assaults. Second will be the Skid Row Stabber. This killer targeted people who were experiencing homelessness in an area of L.A. known as Skid Row, hence the name. They're responsible for 11 murders, which took place over the course of three to four months. So, as per usual, here's today's trigger warning. There is lots of violence, lots of stabbing. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of details about the L.A. victims, whereas we know the basics of what happened to each of the doodlers' victims and perhaps a bit about who they were. There just wasn't a lot out there. It seems as if they were and are still keeping a lot of information away from the public eye due to the way these cases played out. You guys know we do our best to be respectful of the victims and the families of those involved. And we always go into the creation of this podcast with the best intentions and just a whole lot of curiosity. Right. We just enjoy learning and discussing these topics. We crack some jokes here and there, but never at the expense of anyone involved. Well, murderers and the like are excluded from that of Mm, course as they should be and you know the cocktail element just kind of brings a little lightness to an otherwise difficult to discuss topic and it's been fun flexing some of these mixology skills i mean suze does most of the flexing but i do help i am the best taste tester that we have on staff so she is she is (laughs) and a good one to be like that's a great idea (laughs) but no she's been (laughs) had nothing but great ideas so on that note, let's mix up a drink. This one looks so freaking good, as they usually do. 
And uh, let's get ready to talk about some true crime. Yeah. So as Brie mentioned, we're talking about unsolved cases this week. I've been calling them the unsolves in my notes since I started researching. Yeah. I didn't know much about the cases, but the more I learned and started to know about them, the more intrigued I became. So I am going to be curious to hear what y'all think yes, when we're done. I agree. So on to this week's cocktail. Like I mentioned, the summer of serial killers, we are offsetting that with the summer of summer cocktails. (laughs) This is a classic sangria. I have been itching to make one of these ever since I got back from Barcelona, because when I had it there, Lord, Lord, was it good. (laughs) It was like one of the best drinks in the universe. I didn't know what the secret ingredient was. There had to be something I was missing. So I hit the Internet trying to figure it out. Turns out it is brandy. I never would have thought to add brandy to a sangria, honestly. Apparently, that's a traditional ingredient in classic sangrias. I mean, it makes sense because, like, I'm used to mixing up stuff with, like, blackberry moonshine and shit like Mm -hmm. that. The other secret ingredient is some brown sugar, but I'll be getting to all that shortly. Mm. Um, As you may or may not know, if you've been listening for a while, we have tackled sangria before on Crime and Spirits, but we did a pink, fun, fruity sangria. So really nothing like the one we've got in front of us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It turned out great. Sangrias I love because you don't necessarily have to follow a recipe. As long as you've got wine, juice, and fruit, you can make a sangria. That's literally it. And it's like nine times out of ten, going to be delicious Mm -hmm. no matter what you throw together absolutely so like if you don't particularly care for a bottle of wine on its own make it into a sangria there's Mm -hmm. hundreds of recipes on the internet or you can just make it up but whatever the one that we're following today is from minimalist baker it is easy to follow easy to make and it doesn't involve a ton of work just a little tiny bit of work just a little prep work i would yeah. say nothing too major though we promise Not bad. if you can cut fruit you can do this absolutely killing it <laughs> um so sangria what exactly is it it is a wine punch you take wine the aforementioned fruit and juice sometimes some other booze and you just mix it all up it's literally that easy i love it um Like I said, the sangria I had in Spain was so much better than any that I've had here. I know at my day job, we add fruit purees to ours. Mm -hmm. The first ingredient is sugar. Yeah. Followed by lots of things that are outlawed in Europe. So it gives it that saccharin taste. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily bad, but not really my jam. So we're not going to do any of that today. But if that's what floats your boat, by all means, please do it. Sangrias are really great for people who... A, like sweet drinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, B, who have no problem just throwing anything in the kitchen sink in there. And C, if you're like us and you buy wines based off of the pretty labels and pretty bottles, and then you end up with wines that don't usually so, taste so. super great, and then you got to figure out what to do with said wine. Make a sangria. Boom. Here's <laughs> your solution. So red sangria is the traditional sangria. That's what we're going to be making today. That recipe has been around for centuries. White and rosé sangrias are newer, but no less delicious. It should also be noted that under European Union regulations, only Spain and Portugal, which are the countries that share the Iberian Peninsula, can label their products sangria. Oh, that's interesting. It's a very specific thing. So if you buy pre-bottled sangria here in America, they are probably lying to you. It's... There ain't no way it came from Spain or Portugal. Like champagne all over again. (laughs) The liquor industry just lies to us. Right. 
So to mix up this week's drink, you will need what sounds like a lot of items, but honestly is not that much. So we're mixing up a whole pitcher of sangria. Just keep that in mind. If you want to do it glass by glass, feel free. Again, that requires a lot more work, so we're not going to do that. (laughs) Uh, You'll want to grab an apple. I had Macintosh, so that's what we've got. And grab an orange. Cut one half up in two pieces. This is going to be muddled with the brown sugar. The brown sugar will sweeten it up a touch as well as give it like a deeper, more complex flavor profile. Mm. You'll also want to have some OJ and some brandy on hand. We are using Christian Brothers brandy, but whatever floats your boat. If you want to leave the brandy out, feel free, but I do not recommend it. I swear to you, it will make (laughs) your sangria better. Um, You'll also need some red Spanish wine. Now, keep in mind, you don't have to break the bank here. You're mixing it up with a bunch of other stuff. So Mm -hmm. you don't have to spend $50 on this bottle of wine. In fact, I spent $9.99 on this bottle of wine. And I'm sure it's going to be delicious. Yep. I had a regular who told me when I was starting to get into red wines, he said, go to the South American wine aisle and pick out whatever based on a cute label or what is on sale or whatever speaks to you. Yeah. And that is what I follow to this day and it's Mm -hmm. been over 10 years since I got that advice so the red wine we're using it's trace I don't know how to say it but I think it's owls in Spanish it's b-u-h-i-s oh nocturna red it had owls on the label Mm. so we were in like Flynn your girl over here loves owls. yeah case you were wondering (laughs) so according to winemakers notes this wine is full-bodied and velvety on the palate bursting with delectable jammy cherry and berry flavors of a nice deep cherry red it shows an appeal rich nose of ripe red fruit and spices Ooh, that all sounds great to me sounds fancy so to mix everything up once you have diced up half of your apple and your orange muddle them in your pitcher mixed with three to four tablespoons of the brown sugar if you want it sweeter add more if you don't want it so sweet leave it out we did four it came out slamming mm. It's a lot of fruit and it looks kind of cluster effed in the pitcher, but you're going to want to model it all for about 45 seconds to get it all really well combined. Next up, add three quarters of a cup of orange juice or more if that's what you want. And a third a cup of the Christian Brothers brandy and model it all again for about 30 more seconds. Then just dump in the whole ass bottle of red wine and stir it up really well. Give it a taste test if you want. See if you want to add any more juice or fruit or sugar or brandy or whatever blows your hair back. Another bottle of wine. Um, We added a little bit of ice to the pitcher and gave it one more stir. If you want to add a bunch of ice to the whole pitcher, feel free if you're serving like multiple people and that works for you. Okay, it's just the two of us. So we just iced our glasses and poured poured the sangria over the ice. Because we're saving the rest of the pitcher for post <laughs> yeah and then we garnished it with just some cut up oranges and apples inside and voila mm. so good right that is good you can't even tell there's brandy in there that's the beauty of it mm-hmm. that's why i was sitting in spain drinking my sangria feeling like i was missing something and i could not for the life of yeah. me figure out what it was because normally, I mean, you can tell that there's something else in there. If you are an avid sangria drinker or even just an avid wine drinker, I feel like you would know that it's a wine-based beverage. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that brandy cuts it uh, just enough, like ever so slightly. That's delicious. I'm telling you, test out a classic sangria, guys. Let me yeah. know what you think. It's, it's, worth, it's worth the muddling work. And it really wasn't that bad. It was. It not. sounds like a lot, but really you just had to mush it together for less than a minute. For what seemed like forever. 
it, it was fine. <laughs> what felt like hours? <laughs> that's just because I have to video record you. It's and you're true. just like, this is weird. Yep. And it is weird, but that's what we do now. <laughs> that's just our life. This is who we are now. Mm-hmm. This is me now. Yep. All right. And on that note, as promised, we're going to start with the doodler. I the name makes me laugh every time. I know it's a very serious case, but I'm like, teehee, the the child in me is mm-hmm. like, uh-huh. yep, okay, absolutely. So the murders took place in San Francisco, California. They started in January of 1974 and went on until September the following year. Like I said during the intro, this person is believed to be responsible for at least six murders, but that number could be as high as sixteen. Several of the victims were stabbed in the front and the back, all in similar locations. Police concluded that there was a lot of rage in these killings. Whoever did this unleashed a whole lot of anger on his unsuspecting victims. Absolutely. So the victims themselves varied in age, but all were Caucasian gay men or closeted gay men. Mm -hmm. The perpetrator met his victims at different nightclubs, bars, and restaurants that were known to be more gay community friendly. After he was finished, he would leave the bodies of his victims in places that were known to be secret hookup spots, if you will, for gay people. These spots were often semi-secluded and were very rarely patrolled by law enforcement. Keep in mind now the time period we're talking about. Sodomy laws were still very much a thing around this time, and they were actively and sometimes over excitedly enforced. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wildly enforced, like very much so. Um, There were a lot of people in the LGBTQ plus community that didn't really trust the police at all. And I, for one, can't blame them (laughs) in the slightest there. The doodler seemed to use this paranoia to his advantage, and he was able to pick out a victimology and a dumping ground that would likely lessen the chances of him ever landing on the police's radar. Now, we don't really dig into it in this episode because we have gone over it quite a few times at this point. Mm-hmm. But if you guys are new here, which I know there are some of you out there. Hey, girl, hey, y'all, hey. hey. Um, they then definitely check out our uh, last two episodes for June, our Matthew Shepard and Stonewall episode. We kind of dig into a lot of what the country was like for that community, our community at the time. But just so you kind of have something to go into this case with, since we don't really touch on it much, I just kind of wanted to let you guys know. Yeah, definitely backtrack a little bit and get a nice little history lesson. So as you may have guessed, This killer had a very specific M.O., which ultimately lent to his moniker. The perpetrator fancied himself an artist and would often sketch his chosen victim before approaching them at some point in the night. The doodler used these drawings as some sort of weird pickup line. Now, according to witnesses, they had seen a man hustling at gay bars with sketches before the murders began. Uh, It kind of read like after the murder started, he... Didn't put himself out there as much. But beforehand, people were like, I didn't they didn't think of him beforehand because he just seemed innocuous. Somebody that liked to draw. Right. That's sort of weird at a nightclub, but not the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. So not weird at all either. When you consider like just where we were mid 70s and like where they were at. Like, I'm sure there was a lot of people who went to gay bars because that's where they felt comfortable and wanted to just I don't know. 
just do their, vibe and be yeah, themselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just have a drink and maybe sketch some shit. It's not really what happens here, but I could see it right. not being weird, I guess. Uh, so the MO of this guy was is kind of as follows. Once the drawing was complete, this guy would just go up to whoever it was he just drew. He would show them the picture and say something along the lines of like, hey, let's get out of here. He was a real charmer. Uh, Ron Huberman, a city investigator that was a part of the scene during this time, first heard the term doodler from a bartender at the New Bell Saloon named Wayne Friday. Ron shared, quote, from what I heard from Wayne, this guy would doodle on the napkin and then show his, you know, prospective victim the picture and say, look at this. This is you. And it just sucks people in. And he was good. I mean, I never saw his work, but from what the rumor was, he could do a representation, which is so interesting and terrible at the same time. What a what a way to hook people in. Because it would, right? Well, you're feeding into their ego. So it's like, look, I drew this likeness of you. Look mm-hmm. how good it is. Hey, you want to like especially the road, in out? a bar or like a nightclub setting people's inhibitions are lowered and stuff like that so They're much more open to having a conversation with a stranger in the first place mm-hmm. so i mean he definitely he knew what he was doing yes this was a calculated yes setup or mo or whatever yeah. whatever you want to call it premeditation yeah. like there was a lot that went into this it seems at the very least he perfected it over time uh, so now we're going to go over doodlers confirmed victims the ones that we just know for, for a fact. fact are connected yes so the first victim was found at 157 in the morning on january 27th 1974 his name was gerald earl cavanaugh and he was 49 years old at the time of his death gerald was a canadian american immigrant who worked as a furniture finisher he was originally born in montreal however he left home when he was young and wound up serving in the U.S. Army towards the end of the Second World War. Gerald found himself in the Haight-Ashbury district and ultimately settled down there. He returned home no more than once a year, and that was only to visit his mother. However, once she passed away in 1967, he didn't seem to have a reason to go anymore, so he didn't. Um, According to Gerald's great-nephew, who, quote, unquote, sort of put two and two together, um, he was able to come up with Quote, a pretty good idea why he was in San Francisco. And he went on to say, I'm presuming he was a queer man who was trying to live. I guess what I'd imagine is a semi-private lifestyle, which that sounds fair to me. Seems accurate. Right. The family itself was fairly religious. So if Gerald was out, uh, it was it's very likely that his family didn't know about it. This could possibly, potentially, we will never know for sure, but it could explain the strict visitation schedule that he kept before his mom's death. Yeah. Like, why go home and give him something to talk about kind of deal is my thought. It could be a number of things. I mean, like, he, there could be family members that have spoken ill about people who live in San Francisco. Even something as simple as that, simple as that could be enough to... Like, you know what? Now that this like tie to this part of the family isn't there anymore, maybe I'm just not going to go back. Right. Which I think is fair and valid. So the morning that Gerald was found, uh, police actually received a phone call from an unidentified young man who reported seeing a body at the water's edge of San Francisco's Ocean Beach. 
When the police arrived on scene, they found Gerald fully dressed and lying face up. He had been dead for several hours by the time he was found. It was determined that Gerald had fought back during the attack. There were many self-defense wounds found during the autopsy. When Gerald was initially found, there was unfortunately no way to identify him. So he was known as John Doe number 7 until his sister was able to make the trip to San Francisco and properly identify Gerald's body. That's so sad. That's what makes this the fact. I think that, (laughs) rephrase, restart. (laughs) I think that part of what makes the fact that this is unsolved, like the extra oomph to it is that a lot of these people went unidentified for a long time. So not only were police having a hard time closing the case, they were having a close a hard time figuring out who these people even were. Right. I feel as though if you can't identify victims, it's very hard to find out who killed them. Right. You know, it just didn't really set the uh, the police up for success not in even that regard. A little bit. Um. So the next victim was discovered on June 25th, 1974. Joseph Stevens was a performer who went by Jay while on the stage. They were a female impersonator that sang, danced, could tell a joke, and did a really fantastic impression of Julie Andrews from what I've read. I would have loved to have seen that. Um, He was a part of a comedic trio with his sister Melissa and a fellow comedian named Steve Miller. They were known as the Wonder Sisters. And from what I had researched, people had nothing but rave reviews for Joseph. The consensus was that he was a charming kid and that, quote, with makeup and hair and costumes and, you know, the fake corsets and all that. He was also a strikingly beautiful woman, end quote. He also had a, quote, a face that launched a thousand sailors, end quote. I thought that was kind of cheeky, so... Um, While Jay was outspoken and open during her performances on stage, Joseph was much quieter and more modest in nature. He was multi-talented and just a super nice guy to boot. He was pretty much just a star on the rise. You could usually find Jay performing at the PS Lounge and at Finocchio's. However, the night before his death, they had been seen out at a cabaret club. Performing is a little hard out. So he was found by a woman while she was walking along the Spreckles Lake. Authorities arrived on scene and were able to discern that he had passed away shortly before his body was found, which I found interesting. And I think you guys might as well as we go forward. The bodies were always found at like different lengths of time since the murder. And uh, I just found that kind of just a weird fact, if you will. Uh, So they actually suspected that Joe was alive when he originally arrived at the lake that night and that he actually may have been the one that transported both himself and his killer to the area. Joe, like Gerald before him, had been viciously beaten and stabbed. His sister called was called in to ID his body. Afterwards, the entire family quite literally fell apart. So buckle up. There was another sister named Alma who had a bit of a break after her brother's murder because she thought that evil spirits had emerged from Joseph's killing. This crazy train just kind of culminated in Alma attacking her mother. She killed, dismembered, and then burnt her mother in the family fireplace. Alma then took a sledgehammer to her sister's head. It's insane. I don't it's know just how. wild. Melissa survived. 
And Alma ended up in an institution for the criminally insane, hopefully getting the help that she really, really needed. During her stay there, though, Alma gave birth to a baby girl. Not too long after her institute. And not too long after her stay at the Institute for the <laughs> Criminally Insane, Melissa was informed of her father's death. He was burned to death in an office fire. It's like, just how much can one family suffer? I thought as I was typing the first line. Yeah. When Joseph passed away. Right. And then it just continued. Like, it's just more and more tragedies just layered on top of each other. So sad. This family had suffered greatly by this point and basically just went underground. Now, as far as we can tell, Melissa is the only one that's really been willing to talk every now and then. She briefly spoke to reporters, which we'll get into a little bit later. Mm -hmm. uh, But I think her point of view on things is really interesting. There was one gentleman whose article was very, very well done. Yes. Well written, well researched the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. And he really went to great lengths to find people who mm-hmm. could give him some insight on these people. It was a really interesting read. It, it was. It will be linked if you want to check it out. Absolutely. So victim number three was found on July 7th, 1974, by a woman walking her German shepherd along Ocean Beach again. The victim was one Klaus Christman. He was 31 years old. He was a German-American immigrant, and he worked for the Michelin Tire Company at the time of his death. Fun, I say with a question mark. (laughs) Fact about the woman who found him. Her name was Tauba Weiss, and she was actually a survivor of Auschwitz. So I know the woman had seen horror in her life, but like, (laughs) dear Lord, can she have a break? (laughs) Also, I just kind of found the... Ty, interesting. He was a German-American immigrant. She mm-hmm. just happened to be the one that stumbled upon him. Sometimes the universe works in weird ways. I just thought it was interesting. Right. Weird. Very weird. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Klaus himself was last seen alive at the dance club Bojangles, which was located in the Tenderloin District. Klaus was temporarily staying in San Francisco and was actually crashing at a friend's place at the time of his death. When police got involved, they noticed that Klaus's death was much more violent than that of the previous murders. There were far more stab wounds, and additionally, Klaus had been stabbed in the throat several times, which actually nearly decapitated him. So there's a lot of force and rage behind it. So much rage in something like that. Klaus was found fully clothed, which was the same as the previous murders. In fact, some of his clothing was specifically noted because it implied Klaus to be gay, and that he was likely closeted because he was found with a makeup product, likely a lipstick, because it's specifically referred to as a tube. Yeah, like a makeup tube. Yeah. He had lots of rings on and he was wearing orange shorts. The closeted idea comes from the fact that Klaus actually had a wife and kids back home in Germany who literally were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> had no idea. Yeah. So, again, we don't know for certain, but... Mm-hmm. Kind of fits along, though, with the previous murders. Everything's kind of starting to line up. Things are patterns are starting to emerge. Mm-hmm. That's the word I was looking for. Um, by the time we get to Warren Andrews, he was 52 years old and worked as a lawyer for the U.S. Postal Service at the time he was murdered. So Warren was incredibly bright and he actually had an education from Harvard to back that up. He was found in Land's End on April 27, 1915. So this is... No, this, wait, 1975, I think. 
Oh my gosh, yeah. Why did I write that? Debris. That happens to me a lot. I just hit a lot of numbers. Mm-hmm. I'm going too fast. Your brain was just going too fast. Well, and I can always tell when at the end of the day, after like a handful of hours writing, my brain just starts making things up. <laughs> and Fill in the blanks. I'll go back the next day and like read through so I can get like a feel for where I was going with things. And then I'm like, what oh, no. did I even say here? Girl, was, I, was I on mm-hmm. drugs? Like what's happening? <laughs> Anywho, Land's End is interestingly less than two miles from Ocean Beach. So we're in a very in close vicinity, vicinity here. Yeah. Uh, Warren had been beaten with a rock and a tree branch. Now this went against the pattern that law enforcement was starting to pick up on. They speculated that the knife was likely lost during the struggle that took place between Warren and the killer. They did mention one of the police on scene it's sort of like a hilly area mm. with lots of scrub brush and stuff. So okay. it's very possible that the knife just went tumbling down. Yeah. You know, it could be lost in the scrub brush. It could be gone forever. Nobody knows. Yeah. But that was their line of thought was during the struggle, it somehow got knocked out of his hand and, and down the hill. I mean, that would make a lot of sense, especially if he resorted to a rock and a tree branch. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think, I mean, something had to have happened. De- yeah, definitely. Um. He was basically forced to resort to whatever was available in the moment. So, I don't know. It kind of appeared to cause him to get a bit sloppy, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not only was both murder weapons left behind, but police had also found a bloody handkerchief. When police arrived on scene, Warren was unconscious but still technically alive. He was flown to Seattle almost immediately by his family shortly after he was found. That's where he was from. Unfortunately, Warren never regained consciousness. He passed away seven weeks after his attack. Now, interestingly, this deviance from the killer's MO that we see here had thrown law enforcement a bit initially. They actually originally didn't think that Warren was the victim, was a victim of the same guy. And police actually didn't put the pieces together until much, much later, which, again, we'll get to a little bit later. We'll get to that. So the next victim was found May 12th, 1975. His name was Frederick Elmer Capen, and he was 32 years old. He was last seen at Bojangles, if you'll remember. Mm. Another victim was also Mm -hmm. previously seen at Bojangles. Um, In this instance, Frederick was wearing a rainbow pattern shirt and a blue corduroy jacket. Again, just a little flair for the... The dressing there. (laughs) Um, He was stabbed 16 times, many of which were to his aorta, which ultimately is what killed him. It appeared to law enforcement that the killer moved Frederick's body approximately 20 feet from where the stabbing occurred. This was based off some disturbances found in the sand nearby. Frederick was able to be identified via his fingerprints because before his death, he was working as a nurse at a nearby local hospital Before that, Frederick served in the U.S. Navy. He actually earned multiple medals while serving in the Vietnam War. In 1975, he dragged four wounded Marines out of a combat zone while Viet Cong soldiers rained down hellfire upon them. So the man was kind of a hero. Yeah. (laughs) Um, During the battle, however, doing all this heroic whatnotness, friendly fire shattered his lower left leg, which prompted and probably sped up his return back to the U.S. Yeah, for sure. 
Harold Goldberg, age 66 at the time of his death, was a Swedish-American immigrant who left home at 16. He had forged papers that got him out of the country, and he just did not look back. He went on to work as a merchant sailor and was able to become a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1955. His home was in San Francisco, but he traveled extensively. Harold was discovered on June 4th, 1975 at around 6 that evening in Lincoln Park, which is near Land's End. You're seeing all of the dots connecting. a pattern. When police arrived on scene, it was estimated that he had been dead for approximately 10 to 14 days already. And that's kind of what I mean. We had one that it was just a few hours. One One was was almost a full day. Yeah, one was still alive. It's just interesting to me how that all worked out. Uh, Frederick, yeah, like the other victims, Frederick, Harold, all of these guys, they were brutally stabbed to death. There were some noticeable inconsistencies, though, between the attack here versus the others. He was older than previous victims. His pants were left unzipped and his underwear was missing, presumed to have been taken by the perp. What a weird souvenir. Especially Mm -hmm. at this stage in the game. I mean, he had left everybody dressed and intact, for for lack of a better word. Yeah. The condition of his body made identifying him difficult. He was known as John Doe 81 for a while. It was believed that he was the final victim of the doodler. Now, in my opinion, this is one of the most interesting parts of Mm -hmm. this case because there are actually three survivors of the doodler. There is not much out there on these victims. We will tell you why later, mm-hmm. but we're going to go through what we could find specifically. So the first up, they all have names, which I yeah. find hilarious. <laughs> like little nicknames. <laughs> right. He's known as the diplomat. So? He was a handsome, mysterious man. He was also a regular in multiple gay bars to people that had talked to him. He sounded Scandinavian specifically, which I don't know if I'd be able to pinpoint that, but I love that people were able to. Um, He was actually approached by the doodler in July of 1975. He met the doodler at the truck stop around 2 a.m. The truck stop was a late night diner where people migrated after a nearby gay bar closed. So the doodler wound up sketching not the diplomat himself, but animals this time. So weird. They wound up at the diplomat's home in a Fox Plaza apartment, which from what I could find was very upscale and rather fancy. The doodler actually asked, hey, like, can I go take a leak or whatever? So when he emerged from the restroom, the diplomat had his back turned and he his back was facing the doodler. The doodler said, you guys are all alike, and then proceeded to stab the diplomat six times with a steak knife in the back. He also said while stabbing, Quote, I've had other people I've done this to before, and I enjoy this. Your anguish and pain and everything else is something I enjoy. So we were pretty spot on about that anger. Yeah, a little bit. I would say. So the doodler was just stabbing away, but the diplomat got lucky because the knife blade broke and the diplomat was able to throw the doodler off of him. The doodler went hightailing out of there and just... a. I don't, I, again, I, res, I hesitate to say fun. Right. <laughs> but authorities do have this man's name and all of his contact information, but he does refuse to help or even talk about the case with anyone. Yes. With authorities, with the media, with mm-hmm. anybody. 
quite frankly, we're lucky to know what we know. It's true. The second survivor has been kind of coined the almost victim. <laughs> Just a week and a half after the stabbing of the diplomat, the doodler went to the same floor in that Fox Plaza. He worked his way into another man's apartment somehow. How? How? That is unclear. Uh I don't know. Maybe, you know, I wonder, did like the comp, did he get confidence? Like, was he, was he charming? Was it just the, the sketch or was he able to like or follow he it like, up? Knock, knock. Hey, can I use your phone? To yeah. Call? Blah, blah, blah. Like a ruse or right. something like that. Like we'll I never know. <laughs> I feel like he had, I feel like there was a plan to an extent, mm-hmm. but then once like something happened that threw him off that plan is when things just go to chaos. Yep. Like I could see that. Hence the steak knife, hence the rock, the branch, the things. Uh, so he managed to work his way into this guy's apartment and he tied up this person. He was ready to stab him when he repeated the line about gay guys being all alike. This man screamed so fucking loud that his neighbors <laughs> began to pound on the walls, which freaked the doodler out. And he got he just ran away, which I mean, good on him. Saved his fucking life. Well, yeah. Whatever it takes, man. That's what I like. I'm always if you're ever in a situation like where you feel as if you're being threatened, just get fucking loud. Right. But I heard, and I feel like this is probably really true, that you shouldn't, like, if something bad's happening to you, you should yell fire because people are more likely to respond and pay attention to a fire than, like, anything else. I don't know if that's, like, true, true. I haven't found anything that's really sad, that, like, but I believe it cements it. But it was something I've just heard, like, as my as growing up as like a lady in this world, Mm, (laughs) one mm -hmm. of those, you know, one of those many, many safety tricks that we get told as we're coming into our own (laughs) rape whistles and whatnot. Yeah. (laughs) So the next one was the actor, the actor. Now this time the doodler tried to kill an unnamed actor. And apparently he was like a very well-known entertainer, like well-ish enough known that people within certain circles know him. Yeah. Or knew him. And it would have been detrimental had his name been associated with this whole situation. When these two men, the doodler and the actor, were about to go. That sounds like a bad joke. I literally was <laughs> like, that sounds that, like, like a knock knock joke it. or something. <laughs> <laughs> when these two men were about to go to bed, a knife had fallen out of the would be killer's coat. And this time the actor was the one that kind of ran away and was able to save his life and get out his name isn't in the official files so no one can actually find who he is this is literally the only information we have that that was all i found and i'm telling you i had like 15 sources yeah she scoured (laughs) that that was all i could find for the shit Uh, so after frederick's murder the police sort of believed that they had found a connection so they called in a team known as the soul brothers um They were the same folks who helped bring in the zebra killers, which, if you know anything about them, makes these Soul Brothers kind of a big deal. Uh, This duo consisted of homicide inspectors Rotea Guilford, who was San Francisco's first black homicide cop, and Earl Sanders, who actually would go on to become San Francisco's um, first black police chief. So we're breaking down some barriers here. Heck yeah. Um, Guilford and Sanders dug right in. They got to work on the case. They knew a lot of informants and stuff like that. They had a lot of ins and people they could talk to. So they hit the ground running. Yeah. 
First, they tried to find the survivors, and miraculously, they found them all. However, again, due to laws at the time, sodomy specifically, none of the survivors were willing to testify or give an official statement. They were able to, the Soul Brothers were able to get a description of who they were looking for, however. So the suspect, the doodler, was described as a black male, somewhere between 19 and 25 years old. He stood around six feet tall, and he had a slender build. That's literally could be anybody. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? That's it's the most generic. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> Police eventually land on a person of interest after a phone call in October of 1975. I found this whole sequence of events really interesting. So check this out. A woman claimed to know a man who sketched and lived in the East Bay area. At first, this was completely ignored by police. They were just like, okay, lady, whatever. We're happy you know a person that sketches. Congratulations. (laughs) This is California. Right. (laughs) This same woman called back 10 days later because she was pissed that nothing had been like done. So very clearly, this person's giving her the heebie-jeebies enough to place two phone calls to the tip lines to the police. And it makes me wonder, maybe, maybe she didn't describe like... Maybe she wasn't able to explain herself very well. Maybe the police didn't care. We're not really sure. I'm sure they were up to their eyeballs. Yeah. In tips and... There was just, you know... So much happening. This time around, though, she was able to provide the police with a license plate number. So getting a a little more out of things here. Fast forward a week later, still nothing had been done. Law enforcement receives another phone call, this time from a psychiatrist's office secretary. She told police that she suspected a man that was being treated by her boss as being the person they're looking for. And coincidentally, this man had the same name that was given to officers by the previous woman who had called twice. Hmm. It's almost like we should look into that. It might could be (laughs) worth it. Almost (laughs) like. Three days went by. Three more days. And then the psychiatrist himself called police and he tells the officer how he worked at Highland Hospital in Oakland and that he had a patient who was currently dealing with some self-hatred due to homosexual feelings. Hmm. The doctor goes on to say that his patient had allegedly blurted out incriminating things and in a kind of sort of way may have admitted to the Ocean Beach killings. May have. So Sanders asked to speak with this person of interest and did so over the phone. Guilford actually went to see this person in person. During this conversation, the suspect admitted to struggling with his sexual identity, but said that, quote, his sessions with the psychiatrist had cured him, end quote. Hmm. Not a thing. (laughs) Um, He went to talk on talk further about his steady lady friend among a bunch of other random things. However, not once did he admit to any wrongdoing. So this meant that the police had no confession, no witnesses willing to talk and no physical evidence. So they literally had nothing. They had a brick wall with nowhere to go. They tried to find the psychiatrist, the doctor again, hoping that maybe he could help. But they didn't actually know who he was since the tip he'd given had been anonymous. One of the Soul Brothers had written in his notes a doctor something. He abbreviated it. He had some sort of shorthand that nobody else could understand. Oh, so it was of a course a P or a P 
priest or something like that. So they were like, maybe it's a priest who's converting people with homosexual ideations, mm. blah, blah, blah. Everybody's looking for these people. At the end of the day, they, we, the researchers think a man named Dr. Howard Priest, P-R-E-E-C-E, might have been the guy. He died in 2005, but he had practiced in the Bay Area in the 70s. He had worked at Highland Hospital around the right time period, and he seemed to have a very high sense of civic responsibility. He also spent years counseling U.S. Army troops in Germany. He additionally treated an inmate or two at Salinas Valley State Prison, and so he was also very well-versed in the justice system. So this man knew Checks his shit. all the boxes. So it might could be him, but again... He has since passed away, yeah. so we'll never know. Dead end. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like if he hadn't come, come forward, and by the time we hit two thousand five, I just probably wasn't going to happen. Never would have. Yeah. I don't think it was anything that we ever would have known. Anyways, now after being interviewed by law enforcement, this person of interest here left the area for a trip that lasted several months allegedly they don't really know but they, they're not sure they're speculating <laughs> he was not available to them at the very least for this for an extended amount of time which looked bad especially when this trip allegedly took him all over the country we're talking coast from coast border to border up down left right if you look into it you can find that there was a similar murderer operating in louisiana in the late 70s slash early 80s that also coincidentally picked men up at gay bars and would brutally stab them to death. It's almost like it's the same person. It's almost like he's a serial killer. <laughs> and like he left, if it is the same person, you know, like hypothetically speaking, right. he left the most identifying part of his MO out, which honestly was smart and also speaks to premeditation and how I, I feel like my interpretation of how this person approached his terrible deeds. Right. Now they do have sketches of this yes. person. They do have updated sketches of this person. Mm -hmm. So the witnesses were, or the survivors were at least willing to give that much. So yes. And we will make sure that we put those in some kind of post, way, some, shape or form, some kind of way for you. So this person of interest is still alive and is still living in the East Bay area. Police will not reveal his name for fear of compromising their case. He also has not been publicly arrested or implicated or any of the things. So to that end, the authorities consider this case very much open and they just refuse to re like release any further details about the cases. Yeah, everything is very tight lipped. Yes. However, evidence has been recently reexamined, which is what led the police to connect the murder of Warren Andrews to the doodler. In 2019, a $100,000 reward was offered for information leading to the arrest of the killer. When they learned of the Warren Andrews connection, that amount doubled, which was in January 2022. Warren's sister, Melissa, was contacted last year by local news station, and she said, quote, the fact that people are interested in it now means we're getting closer because for years it went unnoticed. You know, a lot of families have been terribly damaged by this act of his, end quote. Which is so true. And I hope that, I mean, we've talked a lot about this on the podcast, that now that there's a lot of, there's entire teams dedicated to 
going back into cold cases and comparing DNA mm -hmm. and trying to do I mean, look at what's happened in the last couple of years. Yeah. I think it would be, it's going to be really interesting to follow this case. I hope they solve it. I really hope they do. Yeah. The families deserve some sort of any kind of closure. Closure. Yeah, absolutely. Now it's just a big question mark. And there's just, and it's, I think it's even worse knowing that there is somebody who fits the bill in a lot of ways and there's nothing that police can do. Right. It just is. I just really wish somebody would speak up. <laughs> I know. And but I mean, I get why they don't. I, I mean, and at it. this point, we don't know if they're even still alive. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that I would assume everybody's dead, but I mean, shit happens. Right. So you just never know. Um, but like, what Suze is alluding to is just the sheer fact that people's lives were ruined when they would come out because mm -hmm. of the negative connotation that came or, with being gay at the time. exposed in the media as mm -hmm. at, they were outed basically in the media. Yeah. That could ruin, especially somebody that's a diplomat. <laughs> or, you know, a well-known entertainer. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the battles that we see today. Right. With people of the community just trying to get any kind of representation in the media. It's hard now. It was 10 times harder then. I would say hundreds of times yeah, harder. Absolutely. I can't even imagine. For sure. So I know I'm with you. I wish I wish that something could happen. Who knows? I wish I wish. <laughs> I know. Fingers crossed. It's something that we're going to keep an eye on. Though, it's true. I hope forward. we do see some movement. So who knows? They've just just last year. You know what I mean? Just a year and a half ago. They were able to at least find another victim. Connection, yeah. So I think that well, there's that, hope. That's the initial. It could be more victims. We don't really know mm -hmm. right now. So because that's another kind of closure for other people involved too. I mean, how many? When we talked about Sam Little, how many people had family members go missing and they just have no idea what Ugh. happened to them? Yes, mm -hmm. you know. So hopefully, if that's the case, we get more answers. We're gonna keep an eye on things and we'll update you guys like we like to do so don't you worry on that yes but let's get into our next unsolved serial killer yes ma'am so we're gonna be diving into the skid row stabber so everybody take a minute to take a sip of our drink mm -hmm. we're switching gears here as we mentioned during the intro he was responsible for 11 murders which took place in la the killer targeted the unhoused population most specifically those who lived on skid row for those of you who might not know Skid Row is a neighborhood located in downtown L.A. and is known to be, quote unquote, the seediest place in America. It is a place that has basically become a lawless tent city full of people suffering in one way or another. Those that are down on their luck, addicts, the mentally unwell, et cetera, et cetera. The homeless, yeah. It's really, uh, it's not a great place for people to end up. It's not entirely safe for anybody. Those like visiting, Brisa, those the who lawlessness live there. is the scariest part. And I actually learned today that there are several different neighborhoods that are referred to as Skid Row mm -hmm. that follow the same kind of uh, situation. Mo, yeah, yeah, if you will. Uh, it's really sad to see, but I think this one in LA is the most one of the most famous. I think it's one of the largest. And <laughs> from what I but read, I believe it. it's like 50 blocks, like five zero. Well, so I just as like a insert, the weather in San Francisco and L.A. is more attuned to people living outdoors. Right. 
Because San Francisco also struggles with a large homeless population. Yeah. Uh, also, their housing markets are crazy, crazier than ours. Yeah. So I can only imagine what oh, it would for be sure. like. Because when I was reading some of the statistics, um, I was like, wow, that's a staggering, like a staggering number. But I had the kind of had the same thought. Yeah. Like it, it makes sense. If I was forced into that kind of situation, I would also go where it was warmer. Yeah. Heck yeah. At least if I can't have anything else, I'll choose nice weather. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so at any rate, the Skid Row stabber used a knife as his weapon of choice. Obviously, the stabby part. <laughs> right. Um, his MO was to simply choose a victim, stab them to death, and then dump their body in an alleyway somewhere. All of the victims were left within a four block radius of each other, which is very small if you think about it. Um, the murders began on the morning of October 23rd, 1978, with the killing of 50-year-old Jesse Martinez. Allegedly, from one source that I found, Jesse was not homeless. He was actually working as a line cook in the area. Again, though, we have very little to no information on any of the victims in this case. Unfortunately, all that we know is that their name, most of their ages, and when and where they were killed. Yep. So we're going to go ahead and give you the names of them real quick. So on October 29th, Jose Cortez, 32-year-old, was murdered. October 30th was Bruce Emmett Drake. He was 46. In November, on the 4th, J.P. Henderson, 65-year-old, was murdered. November 9th, David Martin Jones, 39. He was attacked and killed near the L.A. Public Library. Two days later, uh, Francisco Perez Rodriguez. He was 57. Um, November 12th was a double murder. So somebody's getting ballsy. Um, Frank Floyd Reed, who was 36, and Augustine E. Luna, who was 49, were both murdered within that 24-hour period. And then five days after that, on November 17th, Milford Fletcher, a.k.a. Jimmy White Buffalo, he was a Native American, 34 years old. November 20th, Frank Garcia, aged 45. His body was found on November 23rd. This was near City Hall on a bench. The killer somehow managed to escape unnoticed, despite the fact that this area was semi-crowded. No witnesses were ever located. However, a palm print was found near the body on the bench in the blood. This could have potentially been left by the killer, so that will play an important part mm -hmm. later on. And then we come to the final victim, Luis Alvarez, who was murdered on January 21st, 1979. Now, at some point, police were able to track down some people who had witnessed the murder of David Jones. Three of his friends claimed that an unknown person had talked to them for several minutes before walking right up to David and just beginning to stab him. The witnesses described the attacker as a 30-ish-year-old black man who was soft-spoken and clean-shaven. He stood around six feet tall and was on the heavier side. They went on to say that he walked with an unusual and slow gait and spoke with a Puerto Rican accent. The stranger also introduced himself as luther can you imagine the kind of unhinged individual it would take to just walk up to somebody start a conversation and then just stab them no that like you mentioned as we were going through like the victim's names like at some point this guy was getting ballsier like he absolutely was escalating 
committing double murders in 24 hours, leaving bodies in plain sight of City Hall and nobody seeing a thing. How? What? That's insane. I know you put your blinders on when you're in big cities, but goodness gracious. (laughs) Yeah, right? So the same month as the final attack, an inscription was found in the toilets of the L.A. bus terminal building that read, quote, my name is Luther. I kill winos. I put them out of their misery with an exclamation point. Yeah, he was not fucking around. He was very excited about it. Uh, After this, several suspects began to emerge and they went on to arrest and then subsequently release two suspects. But they were trying. At least, yeah. But again, given the population, given the victimology, it's very hard to pinpoint things. And like, I feel like the description we got was more specific, but in ways that would be very difficult to like. Again, though, that could be anybody walking down the street. In L.A.? Absolutely. That could be anybody, you know? It just wasn't a lot to go off of to try to find somebody specifically. It's like a needle in a haystack. Right. However, things started to turn around a little, if you will. Um, It was early in the year uh, 1979 when the test results came back regarding the bloody palm print on that bench. It was revealed to be a match to a 29-year-old man named Bobby Joe Maxwell. Bobby Joe had been released from jail in Tennessee two years prior, which is when he made the move to California, I believe, to live with his sister. He had family there, Mm -hmm. so... Why the hell not? Again, if I have to choose, I'm going to pick nice weather. Absolutely. Um, He was described as a quote unquote casual worker, and he spent a lot of his free time in the Skid Row area. So uh, it's not looking good. He's checking some boxes so far. Turned out that Bobby Joe also had a little bit of history when it came to trying to scare or hurt the unhoused people of the area. On December 14th, 1978, he was actually seen demonstrating deviant behavior, quote unquote, against people while they were sleeping on the street. He was found standing over a man sleeping on the sidewalk. Officers arrested him on the spot and charged him with disturbing the public order. During the arrest, police seized a double edged stainless steel knife. Now, this weapon was retained by the police because it was consistent with the wounds found on eight of their victims. Now, Bobby Joe was convicted and sentenced to 60 days in jail, which he served. He was released on January 18th, 1979, just three days before the last murder took place. Now, it should be noted that there were no other murders that fit this MO and all that jazz while Bobby Joe was serving this 60-day sentence. Hmm. I find that suspicious. Hmm. <laughs> So in April of 1979, Bobby Joe Maxwell uh, was arrested on suspicion of murder. After the arrest was made, law enforcement searched the apartment he was staying in. They seized his tennis shoes, some clothing, specifically a sweatshirt, some of his diaries and logbooks, a Bic lighter, and some letters. After going through everything, the investigators concluded, (laughs) I say this heavy air quotes, somewhat sarcastically, (laughs) that Bobby Joe was in fact a Satanist. This was largely in part due to um, an entry found in one of the logbooks that said, quote, Satan, praise be unto you, end quote, as well as a drawing in a notebook, which happened to be a satanic related symbol that resembled an illustration located near one of the bodies. Now, I feel like Skid Row has graffiti. So Mm -hmm. how do they? Right. Again. Right. 
tenuous connection, At but best, a connection yeah. nonetheless. Right, 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 right. This was all determined to have been written in Bobby Joe's handwriting, and it proved that he was, in fact, allegedly killing to deliver souls to Satan. I would just love to know how they went from A to, like, F right. to Y. It was like A to Q to seven because I'm like, what? Yeah, I don't I don't fully. I mean, obviously, we don't know exactly what they saw or what was seen or read or written all the things. But like. I just I don't know. I'd be curious to find out just because I would love to know what it was exactly that made specifically that was like, well, Mm -hmm. he's delivering their souls to Satan, obviously. Yeah, I mean, that's (laughs) such a specific MO. I feel like. And to proceed with something like that yeah you have to be pretty confident i would think right and i would also think that like there would probably be a touch of mental illness maybe in there like i've known a few people who consider themselves satanists in the past and they were some of the kindest souls i've ever met so not immediately murderers i don't know i'd just be curious unfortunately all we can do is sit here and guess and speculate (laughs) yeah Now, as far as police were concerned, they had found their man. Next stop was the trial, which was delayed off and on for five years. Five years. Dear Lord. I thought we had the right to a speedy trial. There was just a lot of legal wrangling and like. No, I know. It's never speedy. Again, though, I'm curious. Perhaps their case was not as secure as they thought it was. So they had some holes to plug up or something, you know. It begs the question, you know. I have my suspicions, which I will get to later. Definitely going on. At least that's how it feels. Right. Uh, So the trial finally began in early 1984. There was very little physical evidence, but the prosecution just went for it anyway. Their key witness was a man named Sidney Storch, a.k.a. the informant extraordinaire, a.k.a. The Snitch Professor. I like that he had multiple nicknames. The Snitch Professor, though? Mm. Just wait. It Just, makes sense. It will. Sydney was a 37-year-old felon that had quite an extensive rap sheet. His arrest included, this was our favorite, he was in trouble for impersonating a CIA, CIA officer. Wow, words Okay, great. I mean, trying to pretend you're a law enforcement agent, okay, like ballsy, but, but he the also next part is worse. Impersonated Howard Johnson. You know, the heir of the Howard Johnson Hotel the, chain. One of the Howard Johnsons. Like, the <laughs> Howard Johnson. He just pretended to be him. The balls. I just, honestly, this man is confident if he is nothing else. Mm. Now, Sydney shared a cell with Bobby for about three weeks in 1983. And according to him, Bobby Joe admitted to the killings and then proceeded to describe them in detail. Because that's what murderers do, right? I mean... Is that what they do in their cells? No, I is don't. just tell each other about murder. I feel like there's some out there who have definitely gotten into into their jail cells and they were like, ha ha, look at what I did because they were like proud of it. But I I don't know that it's something that is like absolute. You I know? definitely don't see it in this instance. I agree for sure. It just seems odd. Sydney also went on to quote unquote confirm that Bobby Joe had a deep devotion to Satan. And I would love to know how he knew that. He also apparently, he confirmed that Bobby Joe referred to Satan as Luther. Mm-hmm. Just really specific things that I don't know, like, would that come up in your three week time as roommates? I don't. 
They're not roommates. They're cellmates. <laughs> no, I, I know. But you know what I mean? Like, no, it's just a short amount of time. And I feel like cellmates would almost make it less likely that you would share those things. I would think. But I don't know. I mean, jail is a whole other thing. We've said it before. It's a whole we don't, other thing. We don't fully understand the hierarchy and how things work. Nor and I'm grateful I for that. No. Nope. <laughs> exactly. Um, lastly, Sydney claimed that Bobby Joe also admitted to having messed up during one of the murders, saying that he should have worn gloves. Hmm. Interesting. It just, again, very specific details. It's just. It's like he's hitting all the high points of each. Something feels off. Off to me. So that testimony, as well as testimony from the witnesses to the murder of David Jones, led to the discussion of that seized knife that was found on Bobby Joe. According to the prosecution, the knife matched the width and the length of the one that was actually used in the murders by the killer. During the witness testimonies themselves, they shared with the jury that they had heard the killer say, quote, I'm Luther. I'm the peacemaker. It was also shared that because of this, Bobby Joe was put into a lineup where he was ordered to say, my name is Luther. None of the testifying witnesses, zero out of three, mm-hmm. was able to identify Bobby Joe as the killer during this lineup. In fact, one of them said Quote, you've got everybody up there that doesn't look like him. End quote. You'd think that would be damning. It gets better. For the prosecution. (laughs) Another witness testified that after seeing Bobby Joe at the preliminary hearing, he actually wrote the prosecutor a letter saying, quote, I sure hope you have the right guy, because if you do, he sure did change a lot in the last six months. End quote. That does not inspire confidence in me. No. Hmm, Not at all. This prosecution. (laughs) So a handwriting analysis was conducted and shared with the jury. This concluded that Bobby Joe was the one to have written the message found in that bus terminal building bathroom. Mm. This also led to the jury learning about how a piece of cardboard scrap with the word Satan written on it was found beside one of the victims. Again, that could have been anyone. Could have been any single person who left that there. But apparently it also matched writings found in Bobby Joe's apartment and journals. Hmm. (laughs) The look that she just gave me. (laughs) It's written on a piece of garbage cardboard. I know. I have lots of questions. Unless you're going to rewrite it on another piece of garbage cardboard to compare those two. Right. Notebook paper and cardboard covered in soot and Right. Dirt and whatnot look very different from one and another. It's just they nothing write different. Nothing about this like feels like correct. a slam dunk yeah. to me. Yeah. I don't, I don't like it. It makes me feel icky. Uh when the palm print match was brought up, seems like it would be a slam dunk, right? The defense argued that the palm print could have been there, possibly due to Bobby Joe hanging around the area and that he likely has sat on the bench before. Now, how how did it get bloody? Would be the question that I would have, but I don't know. Maybe it was in oil and the blood was on top. Possible. I don't know. I have a thousand theories. <laughs> thousand of them. <laughs> Not a thousand, but I have a couple. No, yeah, for sure. There's ways to explain it away. I mean, could it, could it have been him? Yes, absolutely. Sure. Could it also have not been him? Could it have yes, been absolutely. convenient that he just happened to be one of many handprints on the bench? Yeah, right. absolutely. Right. So they also found muddy shoe prints near Frank Garcia's body. So obviously they took uh, molds of these in the whole nine yards, measured the stride, everything. 
The prosecution actually brought in an expert to testify that these prints matched a pair of shoes that belonged to Bobby Joe and were seized when they went through his apartment. They were also allegedly consistent with Bobby Joe's stride, which if you'll remember the killer in question, the witnesses saw had a slow and unusual gait. Yeah. But again. Well, and then this is where the defense comes in with their argument because they had, right. They had their (laughs) own expert that came in and claimed that the shoe prints in the first place were too indistinct to prove anything. Additionally, this expert claimed that it was impossible to make a gate comparison in any capacity without knowing definitively the speed of the person who left the shoe prints originally. Well, again, are you walking? Yeah. Running? Right. Just curious. What jogging? exactly does a slow gait entail? I feel like that well, in and of itself could mean anything. Is subjective. Sometimes I walk slow and unusual. <laughs> Yeah, right. You don't know. You know what I mean? After a long day and I sit on the couch for like 20 minutes and then I have to go to the bathroom, I might walk slow and unusual to said bathroom. It's been known (laughs) to happen. Um, So blood samples and cigarette butts were also recovered from the scene of Martin Jones's murder. It was revealed, however, that they were not a match for Bobby Joe. They did, however, just overlook that minor detail (laughs) that they didn't match. (laughs) Here's uh, probably my favorite. This one made me laugh at my computer. As somebody who has owned many a Bic lighter over the years, still currently owning them. Uh, so, you know, he was a Bic lighter was found in the apartment. So this got discussed in court because it's so important. Because it's evidence. Weirdly enough. Now, according to Frank Garcia's wife, this particular lighter looked like one that he had owned at one point. However, according to their son, it was not the same lighter. And anybody who's even seen a Bic lighter at any point in their life has knows that they're like, they're all shaped the same. They're mostly all the same size. For Yeah. Some are small, some are large, but that's really I think it. you have like one of three sizes you can pick for Bic lighters. But in like the, the 70s, standard, you're telling me they weren't all just bright colors? I was just going to say, in the 70s, I feel like there's no way they have all the variation they have of the same designs. You, you wanted an orange or yellow. And even now, I mean, you really want to like, how many times did I run into people who had the same lighter as me? Because we mm-hmm. just buy from the same gas station. That's what I'm saying. It, this is not in any kind of way like. It just doesn't sound how do you like present evidence this to, to a me jury. Like without laughing. Yeah. <laughs> Girl, <laughs> you got me. I literally was like, what? Could a you imagine lighter? being on the jury and being like, what is this is Bic lighter well, evidence? Anybody what? that's. Bombed a lighter from somebody, smoked with anybody else. Like, lighters get passed around. It people could very steal, well have been innocuous. People steal shit all the time by accidentally just putting them in their pockets. Right. Lighters, pens, like that shit happens constantly. Right. I used to be really bad about stealing lighters when I was a cigarette smoker. Like, it just would go, it was I just a, a habit. button and I've never smoked cigarettes. <laughs> I have like 511 big lighters. They just end up in your place somehow. I found them in the couch. I don't know. They're just all over the place. They're like pennies. Like when you just see pennies randomly Mm -hmm. everywhere, it's like lighter. (laughs) So at any rate, once the jury heard all the arguments slash evidence, (laughs) they deliberated for all of three days. On July 12th, 1984, they acquitted Bobby Joe of the murders of J.P. Henderson, Francisco Rodriguez and Melford Fletcher. Because of this, the judge declared a mistrial regarding those charges and the prosecution declined to retry. When it came to the murders of David Jones and Frank Garcia, that 
Bic lighter got him because Bobby Joan <laughs> Joe was found guilty. He was convicted and then sentenced to life imprisonment without the chance of parole. This was given. I consider this the only bright spot, despite the prosecution requesting the death penalty. Right. Yeah. The jury was unable to reach a unanimous verdict when it came to the murders of Jose Cortez, Bruce Drake, Frank Reed, Augustine Luna and Luis Alvarez. The judge declared a mistrial on those charges as well. And again, we see the prosecution decline to retry. There was no material evidence found in any of those murders specifically that would definitively point to Bobby Joe's guilt. Despite this, the media and mm. pretty much everyone else blamed him for all of it. Full stop. No questions asked. And it was at this point that the name Skid Row Stabber began to be used. And this is when Bobby Joe's fight really began. Mm -hmm. He did initially plead not guilty and he did continue his appeal processes over the next 30 years of his life. Yeah. So pretty much the most important first note is in 2010, lawyers were successful in proving several things that led to doubt of Bobby Joe's guilt. The witnesses to the Jones murders could not definitively identify him as the killer in a lineup. The witnesses had given false testimonies in court under pressure from the investigators. What? Mm. Bad, bad, bad. Our boy, Sidney Storch. Mm. The, the informant. fucking guy. The snitch professor. <laughs> that's what it was. Snitch Ugh. professor. Um, now, he was an informant for many, many years, and he had began to abuse that position like whoa he had given false testimony in several trials due to selfish interests there had been concerns about the validity of his testimony since 19 i think what 78 88 no it's 1988 1988 but it was long before that but a lot of it became more full-blown 88 is when it was like hitting the fan yes. essentially right yes on a very large scale mm-hmm it also happened to come out that informants in L.A. during that time had been fabricating confessions in order to receive reduced sentences. What? Some informants even said that Storch had taught them how to quote unquote book other inmates. This involved learning about the high profi profile cases from the newspapers and then using that information and those details to claim that the inmates had confessed. Hence, huh. Professor Snitch. Interesting. Some investigators had even raised concerns about Storch's reliability before this trial. trial. Yeah, This led to a pretty significant scandal over informant testimony over the years. These dates were, these doubts were never raised to the defense. Mm. Storch was indicted for perjury due to this scandal, but he actually ended up dying before he could go to trial. In at least six different cases, though, his testimony was considered invalid or unreliable. Six, though. At least six. How the f Not like six point. How would period. anybody look at him and be like, oh, this is your sixth testimony <laughs> against your sixth cellmate? Yeah. It's got to be true. What? I mean, you would think, right? That's what I was thinking look when I was. Look into it just a smidge and you'd see that that guy's, you couldn't trust him any farther than you could. That's what him. I was thinking when I was going over everything myself and like, how, how did that not, nobody in the defense even <laughs> was just like, I have questions like, about guys, this. 
Guys. Can I look over his credentials? Like his resume? None of it? Like, I don't know. Either way, so according to the National Registry of Exonerations, um, quote, one of the most prolific of these snitches was Storch, who was unmasked as a serial liar. Storch had testified at numerous trials that defendants had confessed their crimes to him, end quote. Due to these combined factors, Bobby Joe's sentence was overturned officially in 2010, and he was appointed a new trial. However, he remained in jail. Should be noted. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, retired LAPD detective Tom Lang, who was the original investigator at the time of the killings, said a witness did actually see Bobby Joe Maxwell at the scene shortly before David Martin Jones was killed. Lang said police also recovered items belonging to several of the victims. These were personal items, including a specific piece of jewelry that had belonged to Bruce Drake as well as a commemorative coin and a set of nail clippers belonging to Frank Floyd Reed during a search of the home of Bobby Joe's sister, Geraldine Maxwell. Now, going back a little bit before we got to the overturning of the conviction, in March of 1991, the Second District California Court of Appeal upheld Bobby Joe's conviction and sentence. And this is what we're going to see a lot of Mm -hmm. until we get to 2010. In October 1991, he filed a state law petition for a writ of habeas corpus. This petition was denied in 1993. In October of 1995, Bobby Joe filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus with the California Supreme Court, which ruled in 1996 that he should get a hearing on the issue of whether he was entitled to a new trial based on Storch's false testimony. It's just wild that, like, we see how much they had to go through to be like, this dude was a fucking liar. Not only like a liar, like the liar. Like <laughs> he and, taught other people how to lie. And you don't think that swayed the jury? Like right. you don't think for a second that that testimony specifically, his cellmate of three weeks, who he claimed confessed to him, you don't think that made a difference, a well, monumental difference? And very clearly, this man was charismatic enough to get away with it for as long as he did. So many years. You know what I mean? He had nicknames. So it's like... He was well-known. I feel like that's unheard of. Like, well-known informants. Like, people try well-known to hide that snitches. shit. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems crazy to me. A series of hearings lasted more than two years after that, from August 1997 to November of 99. Then in February of 2000, the trial court judge ruled that while Storch may have been a sophisticated jailhouse informant, that's really flowery. This part just makes me want to like. Oh, and he they also called him over. an accomplished liar. Make that make sense. Despite his claim of being a novice snitch at Bobby Joe's trial. So not only did he lie about lying, like he lied about lying. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, oh, I've never done this before. (laughs) According to the courts, despite all of that, there's no way that Storch had actually lied at Bobby Joe's trial. His trial was the the truth. Was the exception. That's when he told the truth. Obviously. I'm telling you what. Uh, in <laughs> April of 2001, Bobby Joe filed yet another habeas petition in the California Supreme Court, but this was denied in December of that year. In December of 2002, 
there was a federal petition filed for a writ of habeas corpus on Bobby Joe's behalf. This petition claimed that the prosecution had failed to disclose that storage after getting a three year prison term through his public defenders negotiations, cut another secret deal directly with the prosecution, reducing his time to just 16 months. The petition claimed that not only did Storch falsely deny he had such a deal, but that the prosecution knowingly allowed him to lie about it. What? That's so frustrating. Good. <laughs> How is this legal is my question. It's insane. This petition cited numerous lies that Storch had told at the trial to conceal his past snitch work and portray himself as a novice. I can't even believe that we're using these kinds of terms like snitch work and novice to refer to a man who like he's an understudy made snitch. it his like <laughs> personal hobby to just see who he could put in jail. To lie and deceive and to snitch. That's just wild to That's me. That's somebody who I feel like has not been rehabilitated by the system <laughs> and probably right. needs to stay he in jail. He should be the one staying he in jail. He has not learned the error of his ways. <sighs> Four years later, in 2006, that writ was also denied. U.S. District Judge James Selna ruled that while Storch may have lied about his deal and the prosecution failed to disclose it, Bobby Joe had still received a constitutionally fair trial. Now we mentioned that in 2010, we actually had some positive movement made in the Court of Appeals. The Ninth Circuit reversed Judge Selna and granted the writ. So the court ordered a new trial and concluded that Storch had, in fact, testified falsely when he said that Bobby Joe had confessed. It only took us so many decades right. to figure that out. The court also noted that Storch had testified in at least half a dozen trials and had admitted that he taught other snitches how to book fellow inmates in exchange for reduced sentences and other benefits. So that's again, just showing he's a really poopy. If there was a thing then, like he probably, he probably would have had his own like Skillshare or like YouTube channel. He would have had a TikTok. Do you imagine? Like he would have had TikTok. It's the snitch professor. Check Mm. out my TikTok account. I can't even. (laughs) Ew. The problem is though, he'd probably be successful. Oh, for sure. <laughs> awful. So this is a quote from the court from the paperwork. First, it is undisputed that Storch told numerous lies at Maxwell's trial. At a minimum, Storch lied about his motivation for coming forward, his prior record, the amount of money he had stolen, the level of education he uh, had attained, and the fact that he had previously worked out a 36-month prison term in exchange for his guilty plea before the 16-month deal he ultimately received in exchange for his cooperation and testimony at Maxwell's trial. Do you think the prosecution was like, okay, so I don't have a lot of evidence and I don't have a lot of witnesses. I don't think they... What can I do? Oh, Professor Snitch. Mm -hmm. Let's call him. And they were cellmates. This could work in my favor. Like, do you think it was something like shitty like that? Probably talked to all of his cellmates, but once they found out just who this guy was and what the connections he was willing to go to, I'm sure they were like, book him, put him on the stand, yeah, put him in a nice suit, shave, you know, give him a haircut and a shave. (laughs) I'm sure they couldn't wait to get him up there. I mean, you're probably right. This court further noted, quote, here Storch lied about Maxwell's confession in order to reduce his own jail time. Storch went on to testify for the prosecution and to lie in numerous other cases. 
He became one of Los Angeles County's most infamous jailhouse informants, and he operated at the height of the county's jailhouse informant scandal. Terrifying. <laughs> um, the appeals court also ruled that the prosecution had failed to disclose the evidence of Storch's private detail, as well as his background of snitch work, and then allowed Snor- Storch, Snorch, huh, allowed Storch to testify falsely about those facts without ever correcting his perjury. The information, if it had been disclosed to Bobby Joe's attorneys, would have created, quote, substantial doubt as to Storch's credibility, particularly with respect to his professed naivete, end quote, is what the court said in their ruling. The prosecution sought to appeal, but in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear their case. So in 2013, prosecutors got new indictments against Bobby Joe, accusing him of three of the murders that had resulted in a mistrial in 1984 when the jury was unable to reach a verdict. The prosecution said it would seek to retry him for the uh, Frank Garcia and David Martin Jones murders that were reversed by the appeals court and also would try him for the murders of Jose Cortez, Bruce Emmett Drake and Frank Lloyd Reed kind of feels like they're scrambling mm-hmm. for that. That trial never did occur. In uh, December of 2017, Maxwell actually suffered a massive heart attack that left him comatose. Uh, by the following July, medical experts said that he had less than six months to live. And on August 10th, 2018, the prosecution dismissed all the charges because... Who are you going to prosecute, I guess? What are you going to do at that point? In December of 2018, Bobby Joe's family filed... Yeah, I believe it was his whatever, his estate. Yeah, they filed a lawsuit seeking compensation from the city and the county of Los Angeles, rightfully so. Bobby Joe passed away in April of 2019. The lawsuit was then obviously dismissed. It had no cause to go forward. Right. However, what breaks my heart the most is that Bobby Joe never actually learned of his release. And that therefore means that we have no Skid Row stabber. Technically, suspect. it is unsolved. It has been. I don't know if if they consider it solved or not because of it, the legal wrangling that was happening at the end there. Yeah. I'm not 100% Because, sure. I mean, where it stood was that technically his conviction got overturned. So he was still the suspect. And, and they he were, was still and they actively were, being charged. They were looking to retry him. Yeah. Yes. And in fact, add additional charges. So at that point, technically speaking, innocent until proven guilty, right? So when he had technically been considered innocent or at least not guilty one would think that um the wikipedia page does list it as unsolved but it also does have a picture of bobby Jones. right so it's like take it with a grain of salt i don't personally believe i was just gonna i think it might could have been him but i personally don't believe it yeah i find myself for someone to fight that that much yeah something leads me to believe that that they were innocent especially because it did seem like there was a some kind of either a rage or like a passion or some really like heightened emotion attached to these killings, kind of similar to the do- the doodler yeah. in that way. Stabbing is a very personal way to murder. And people. it takes an extraordinary amount of strength and force mm-hmm. to execute in the way that these two men executed. Operated. Their yeah. yeah. 
And so, I mean, I don't know. I think at, at what point is, I don't know, because it could go either way. He got off on all the other charges. Is it possible that he did in fact commit the murders and he was just trying his hand? I don't know. I would have been curious to see what would have come of a new trial yeah. just because without that quote unquote damning testimony from Sydney Storch, yeah. they really had a lot of circumstantial stuff. So, yeah, in my opinion, not really enough to prove definitively beyond a reasonable doubt for me. Right. I definitely think that it, it fits in a lot of ways, but that's what I'm saying. I could see it, but also I couldn't. It also makes me feel icky. Yeah. I just so. I just don't like the way it went down. I yeah. would have liked a redo since we won't get that. I'm going to say it's unsolved. Well, and I mean, and that's category. <laughs> that's where it was left legally. Legally speaking, they do not have anybody who was. Like, yes, he was charged, but his conviction was overturned. That right. That has to mean something. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. And then what's the fucking point? Right. Valid point, girl. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I don't know. Let us know what your guys' thoughts are. I am really interested to know what you think. Me too. Especially with the Skid Row Stabler. Like, what are your thoughts? Innocent? Guilty? I dove into, I like to kind of do a, a cursory, like a surface search, if you will, of other podcasts when we're looking to do a subject. Yeah. And uh, this one is... It's one of those controversial ones, I think. Um, not so much in the same vein as like Scott Peterson and that whole thing, but like there are a lot of people who wholeheartedly believe Bobby well, Joe is guilty. And from then, all of my research, all of the detectives that work the case believe mm-hmm. that they have their man. He, yeah. you know what I mean? Lock, stock, barrel, it's over. They'd have to, right? Like, <laughs> well, you don't want to be wrong. With something like this. That's kind of what I'm thinking. You like, don't want to rob a man of 40 years of his life. you got to stay know? steady in your conviction mm-hmm. if you are going to yeah. be damning somebody to a life of jail. If it's deserved, then it's deserved and they should be there. But this one, I'm not sure. Again, I just, I don't, I don't buy all of the evidence. Yeah. I think it's tenuous at best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would agree I'd with that. I have more questions than answers. Too, yes. So. Yeah. And it's just a really shitty... And, all of them are shitty. They <laughs> it are. feels so disingenuous saying that sometimes. This one hit me in the feels a little bit more than others at times. So, on that note. All that being said. <laughs> it is our time to skedaddle. Thank you so much for coming to hang out and have a drink with us. We must do it again soon. Maybe next week. Maybe next week you can <laughs> catch us. Make sure that you're following us on social media in the meantime, though. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Crime and Spirits Pod. On Twitter, we're at Crime Spirits Pod. This is where you're going to find ingredients, recipes, fun videos of Sue's making the drink. So you can actually see a visual of what it is she's doing. If you'd like to follow us personally, you can find us on Instagram. I'm at Sue's, not Susan. And I'm at Brie underscore not the cheese. And if you're into what we're doing over here, please go leave us a rating and or review. It really, really helps us out. And it really, really makes our day. It really does make us weirdly happy oh my god so much serotonin (laughs) seriously um if there is a case or a cocktail that you want to recommend to us that we check out you can email us at crime and spirits podcast at gmail.com and finally if you're interested in becoming a monthly supporter of our podcast there is a link for that in the show notes feel free to smash that link if that's what makes your heart happy smash it yeah all right so 
if you are new here, I'll explain corny joke time. So uh-huh. uh, way back when, my bestie Alex used to have really corny jokes on a whiteboard in an office that we worked together. And she gave me the idea to... That inspired this idea. So Susan and I like to tell an awkward or weird or corny or like dad joke at the end of each episode to kind of shake off the heebie-jeebies. So we leave on not a super somber note. Yes. So are we ready? Yes. Why Why are there gates surrounding cemeteries? Why? Because people are just dying to get in. Oh, no. Ah. <laughs> alrighty, alrighty, alrighty. That's a good one. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I like to just go straight corn and right. cringe. <laughs> so thank you guys for hanging out and just being so great and wonderful. And I know that you guys are responsibly enjoying your cocktails while you're sipping along with us. Safety first. Stay home. Stay safe. Have a snack. Drink some water. And... I want to leave you with a little message. I okay, so I'm starting to learn the TikTok. We have to do it eventually. Yeah. Susan and I are incredibly intimidated. We're gonna try. So I've just started using it as just like a regular user, right? And I found this creator who, at the end of her videos, always says, "Go have a good day on purpose." Oh, and I really, really liked it. So that's the sentiment I want us to leave everything on today i hope that you have the best day today and i hope that it's on purpose yeah i love you guys Bye. bye